and welcome to this new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Today, with my two guests, we are going to discuss the issue of immigration in the United States and in particular the, the cruel impact that has had all the rhetoric on the public charge rule that we're going to explain in a moment. So I have two guests with me today, Dr. Chenoa Allen and Dr. Dan Miller. Hello, both of you. And let, let me start with, with you, Chenoa. So you are at University of Missouri, right? Yes, I'm an assistant professor in health sciences and I've been here since 2019. So what has been your interest in immigration policies and its consequences over the last years? Because you published this great editorial reviewing the two articles that we had in the issue. So tell us a little bit about your interest. Yeah, so I started out looking at state policies that restrict rights for immigrants and how they affect healthcare access and similar kind of to the work that Dan published in this edition or issue, sorry. And I have recently shifted to being more interested in state and local policies that expand rights for immigrants and whether those policies can protect immigrant health given the kind of rhetoric and the federal policy over the past, you know, six years or so. And so that's what I'm working on now. Thank you. Thank you, Chinoa. So, Dan, you are an associate professor at Boston University School of Social Work. Tell us a little bit more about your responsibilities there and your interest in the domain of immigration. And thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. First off, it's it's great to be able to join Chinoa and to talk about this really important issue. Yes, I'm at the Boston University School of Social Work. I'm an associate professor, also the director of our PhD program there. I am a social policy researcher broadly. I focus on poverty and policy issues, and my predominant area of interest is in the health and well-being of children and families. I think this will probably come up over the course of our conversation, but the health of children and families in this country is inextricably linked to the health of immigrant children and families. And so a lot of my work brings me in close contact with topics like what we're going to talk about today. I do a lot of research on food and nutrition assistance programs, which is what we happen to be looking at as kind of the realized costs of some of these anti-immigrant rhetoric events that have happened recently. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. And, and since this is a public health podcast, let's first have the magnitude of the problem. What do we know about the number of immigrants that are in the United non-citizens and, and about their status, whether they are legal, legally in the country or not? Currently, there's about 21 million non-citizens living in the U.S. That includes about 7 million undocumented immigrants. It includes people who have temporary protected status and other humanitarian statuses, as well as people who have legal permanent residence or green card. And those are the folks who are eligible to naturalize. In addition, there are also millions of children who are born in the U.S. who live with immigrant parents. And those children are also, of course, impacted by these policies and this rhetoric. Oh, yeah, that's very, very important. Actually, we don't count them. And so how, how many people altogether do you think the, between the parents and the children? It's difficult to say. I think there's about 45 million folks who are born outside of the U.S. So as Chinoa said, a lot of those people have naturalized. They're sort of beyond the bounds of what we'll talk about today, which is this public charge policy. But I don't know if there's estimates also of the number of children of immigrants in the country, but it's a lot. Okay. Okay. But but already 20 million plus children, that is a very high number compared to the 300 and something 
a million people in the country. So it, it is a real huge problem. I mean, we're not talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. We're talking about tens of millions of people that are concerned by the, the question we are talking today. So what what is this public charge rule? Yeah, I don't mind taking a quick crack at this. And, and by the way, as we're talking, it seems like maybe there's about 18 million children of immigrants in the U.S. also now, just to give another round number to the discussion. The public charge rule is a determination that the Department of Homeland Services makes in trying to assess whether when people are applying for citizenship or legal permanent residence, whether they'll be ultimately a pub, what's, what's referred to as a public charge, i.e. the determination is whether they'll be reliant on public sources for their livelihood and well-being. And in those cases, there can be a, a determination against the, an immigrant who's making an application. And so really the issue, I think this is probably what we'll get to speak to, is the changes or the proposed changes to the the public charge rule that have been have been made over the last handful of years and then codified in law and then subsequently stripped back again and, and how damaging some of those changes have been. So if I understand well the, the traditional public charge rule until this uh, new threat appeared, you know, applied to maybe 1% of the immigrant population and it was for conditions that were relatively rare. But the, the league said that if immigrants were poor and wanted to get support for food insecurity, for feeding their children, having health insurance through Medicaid and, and, and access to care, then even those basic needs, if they were covered through those public programs, would, would, you know, impact them in their attempt to become a citizen or at least get a green card this is mm -hmm. this is so so there was this threat and and actually before it became really a rule there were reactions among immigrants you know that by by fear not to get their green card decided skip those benefits to which they had actually access. So what have been the consequences of this? They seem to be really quite profound. Right away, there's, as you point out, response by immigrants, rights groups, activist groups pushing back against this. And there are starts of media reports and other analyses speaking to, showing declines in participation. There's some really high profile analyses in those early couple of years where people are worried about these chilling effects by Urban Institute and other groups that point to large-scale retreat from benefit programs. And that's something that we found in our analyses, too. We use nationally representative data to sort of look before and after this rule was leaked and after the election happened to see whether there were declines in participation. We look at immigrant households living and according to what kind of state they live in, whether they're living in states that also have other generous policies, which might make it more possible for immigrants to retreat from those federal benefit programs that they might be worried about as, as flagging them as a, as a problematic case from the perspective of DHS. But we, and we find really sizable decreases in SNAP participation and school meals programs participation among kids living in, in these mixed status households where there are immigrant parents and, and non-immigrant kids, or excuse me, citizen kids and non-citizen and non parents. Absolutely. 
And, and what, what I, I liked about the, the dossier that we published is that your study was actually a, a national study that looked at the impact on nutrition, but there was this other study, maybe Chenoa, you can say a few words about, which was about access to prenatal care in, uh, in New York City, which was more local, but it was about access to healthcare. So the other paper by Wang and colleagues looked at paid and prenatal care usage, also looking at 2017 when the rule was leaked. They did find decreases in Medicaid and prenatal care use, and that is very consistent with what others have found since then, as well as what we saw even back in the early, or sorry, the late 90s when welfare reform and the first public charge rule came about. We saw these similar chilling effects. So this is really consistent findings over the past several decades that that when we change eligibility for public benefits or we change the consequences of using public benefits, even people who are not technically under the covered under the rule retreat from benefit use. So potentially, although we said less than 100,000 or less than a million, sorry, immigrants are actually affected by the rule, there are tens of millions of immigrants who might disenroll or choose not to enroll because there's a lot of misinformation about it. And, and here we come to a very important point I, that I would like to stress with you is that these are not only consequences for the immigrants. This is consequences for the whole country because these children that are going to be affected through you know, the way they were born or the way they, they were fed, the, the, the way they, were, they were, are going to go to school and, and receive school meals, etc. This is going to affect their growth and they are the future citizens, I mean, if they are not already. So can, can you, you know, describe how these that seem to be focused on a subgroup of the population actually affect everybody? Yeah, so we have a long history of primarily economics literature showing that like Medicaid not only improves the child's health, but leads to higher employment rates, higher earnings in adult, additional educational attainment compared to kids who are not eligible for Medicaid, but are also low income. So we see that not only are children of immigrants affected, about one in four U.S. kids are children of immigrants. So that's a very large population themselves, but there are really implications for the whole country. And we see kids affected who are not um, covered under the rule because there's a lot of misinformation and con confusion and mistrust around what the rule actually entails. So even before the 2019 rule that was leaked in 2017, there was still a lot of confusion about the public charge rule among immigrants, among immigrant serving providers. And to be honest, I didn't fully understand it until I looked at the 2017 rule when it was leaked. Things like, uh, Use of public benefits in almost all cases does not affect your eligibility to naturalize, and people believe that it did. So they're green card holders who think that the rule applies to them when it actually didn't. And, and so not only immigrants themselves, but also researchers, in my case, providers, had incorrect information. And for many years, we have been trying to combat that misinformation and told immigrants, you know, it's safe to use Medicaid, CHIP, other programs that are really essential for supporting health and well-being anything but cash benefits. And then suddenly that was not true in 2017, or it, there was kind of hints that it was untrue. And then in 2019, it was no longer true that it was safe to use those benefits. So as a result, immigrants um, are probably at this point even more confused now that we've had multiple rule changes about 
what the public charge rule even is now. And also don't trust that the policy will stay the same. So right now we're seeing that immigration policy changes pretty dramatically from one presidential administration to the next. And so even if immigrants understand the rule, they are saying, what if it changes in a few years and the benefits I'm using now count against? I think one thing we can tell people in outreach is that the Trump rule, when it was implemented, only applied to benefits that immigrants applied for or received after the rule went into effect. So if people had been using benefits in 2016, 2017, that would not count against them under the public charge rule. I think that's important to tell people both to ease yeah. their minds now, but also to hint at, you know, if the rule changes again, we typically see that your benefits use after the rule is implemented is what counts. So I think that's an important point for us to make to immigrant families themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, Dan, what, what do you see the overall consequences of, you know, on families and children's health in, in the country yeah. when access to SNAP and WIC, et cetera, are... Yeah, I have so many thoughts about this. I, SNAP in particular is really a, a foundational part of our social safety net, particularly in the wake of the retreat from pure cash assistance that I described a little bit earlier. We know from a great deal of research that SNAP is linked to good outcomes for kids and families that extend beyond its ostensible purposes, right, to reduce food insecurity and, and reduce hunger among families. It has academic benefits for kids. It has health benefits for parents. Any decrease in benefits to which folks are already entitled is is frightening from that perspective. From where I sit, it feels it's no longer tenable, I think, to be able to describe the health of immigrant populations separable from the health of the United States, right? They, the entire growth in the child-based population of the United States in the last 20 years has been comprised of children of immigrants, right? So mm -hmm. to your point, we are talking about a group of people directly harmed by the law or the proposed change to a law, despite the fact that they weren't its intended targets, who comprise a substantial part of our population in a growing segment, one that's, that's responsible for arguably a substantial portion of whatever's going to happen to our country in the future. There's a real shame here because there, at the same time, there's this enduring finding in the literature, in particular in social epidemiology, which talks about this healthy immigrant phenomenon and this I suppose puzzle has then been why do the benefits of being an immigrant fatigue over time? We're answering that question in real life here because we have policies and programs that, that create the kind of confusion and fear and threats of the public charge rule. It's often said with respect to our former administration, I know this is not a political discussion, but the, the cruelty was the point. You know, this is the the cruelty and the confusion is the point. In the wake of the of the welfare reform changes that stripped benefits away initially for all immigrants whatsoever, and they were later restored to people who had been living in the country for more than five years, there was a tremendous decline in, in benefit participation, even as Janelle was pointing out, even among people who were still, they were confused, folks were not sure, and, and it took a really long time in the dedicated work of many years of advocacy and effort to try to reconvince people to come back into public benefit programs. So it, it's hard to overstate the effects of these policies. We're really eliminating what is already a very paltry benefit for people that could really use it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that I don't know how many people realize the magnitude of the problem and how it, it impacts the whole a population and and you talked about you know access to Medicaid and and and, and SNAP and, and and all those benefits, but 
And these have long-term consequences. If, if we talk about COVID-19 and the fact that immigrants, because of their fear, could not access, you know, vaccines and testing, etc., because they didn't want to, it, it's absolutely clear that the whole population was by those rules, because if we cannot access everybody and, and vaccine everybody, it's a failure. And I want to, to stress here one thing that I think is very linked to the public health approach is that all inclusiveness is indispensable for a successful public health approach. And that's why public health is so incompatible with the reactionary, conservative, authoritarian regimes, because they try to exclude from the whole population subgroups based on their, you know, race, ethnicity, whether they are citizen or not, their religion or whatever, you know. But once you have chauvinistic, xenophobic, exclusive policies, you defeat public health. And, and that's what we see in this case. So let's move to, to a last point, which is what can we do? What, what, what are the next steps now to, to, to go beyond this situation in which so many people are defenseless? I will say just really quickly, and I know that, you know, this maybe only goes so far as, as, um, as folks are able to take it, but the, the, the updated rule, which is now set to go into effect, what, you know, at the 2019 public charge rule, which reflected a lot of the Trump administration changes, was implemented and then eventually rescinded after not so long. In effect, we have this new rule coming down, which is supposed to be in force in December and about a month from now. Um, that rule does really tighten up some important things. It, it makes clear in the way that Chinova talked about before that kids are not included. It very specifically spells out which programs are can be considered under what circumstances as part of a public charge determination. That's cold comfort, right, to all the people that have already stepped away from these benefit programs. But to the extent that a part of the messaging is, look, there are now these clear rules which are going to make it more difficult to change the way the policy is administered in the future. I think that that will be helpful, but it's obviously a very technocratic and small step. Mm -hmm. In terms of kind of combating the public charge rule now, I also read, I read about half of the Federal Register because they respond to every comment that people have made about the rule and it's about 260 pages long but i read about half of it and there was dhs understands that they need to do outreach and that was emphasized in the comments that people left when the rule was proposed and they have said that they're committed to doing outreach and education but don't specify what that looks like the past in terms of things like getting immigrants who are eligible enrolled in affordable care act programs working with community organiza organizations has been really important because immigrant communities know and trust these organizations more than they will trust DHS coming in and giving them this information. I think long range, there's a lot of innovative policy making at the state and local levels, even though we're kind of stuck at the federal level over the past decade. So for example, California has gradually expanded Medi-Cal to include more and more undocumented immigrants. Their efforts to ensure workers in immigrant heavy industries like agriculture are eligible for workman's comp, which they traditionally have not been, and many more. Um, and so, you know, this is where my research interest comes in, that we know that we're stuck at the federal level and things are not going to change anytime soon, probably, in terms of federal policy in, in big picture, letting people naturalize and things like that. That states and counties are really kind of trying to fill in the gap 
realizing that the health and well-being of their communities are affected and coming up with lots of ways to to try to do will it be enough in the face of things like the public charge rule i don't know that's that's an interest of mine one way i think it interacts with the public charge rule is that state and local benefits do count in public charge determinations so very few states actually offer cash benefits to immigrants but if they do and if an immigrant uses those benefits um, and you know these are people who may not be eligible for federal benefits but are eligible for state or local benefits that can count against them mm-hmm. i think that's not discussed in these kind of estimates of how many people actually are you know affected directly by the rule so there's you know we hope that these benefits programs promote health and well-being for local immigrant communities but the public charge rule could really endanger the the reach of those policies yeah, yeah, and I, I totally agree. I mean, the, there is the issue of communication. There are local and state rules, but we still need to stay optimistic and that and hope that Congress will finally, you know, adopt a federal policy that protects uh, immigrants in this country. So we're getting to the end of this podcast. I just want to, to know what are your final, you know, your your deepest hope and i'm going to start with dan dan you've been in this field for so long and i know you care so much about it what, what's your your deepest hope that tomorrow is thanksgiving don't forget yeah <laughs> thank you for that thank you for the frame i guess I, I would have a couple i mean clearly we i think this is what is sort of the 800 pound gorilla in the room we need comprehensive immigration reform one that's going to smooth pathway to citizenship which clarifies all these different benefits i think at the same time and i, I don't know that one is actually possible without the other we need a, a shift in the national dialogue about what immigration means to the country, right? So we can't, uh, on the one hand, refer to ourselves as a nation of immigrants and then constantly adopt policies and approaches that, that alienate on purpose these really important parts of our, our communities and our population. And so much in the same way that the, the confusion and the chaos were the, the sort of point of this public charge proposed change. I think we also because that plays to this narrative of grievance around people and the, th- the perceived threat that immigrants pose, which is, is not realized in, in any real sense in, in, most, in most circumstances. We need a counter narrative that's going to help, help reframe what, it, what, it, what immigration means to the country and the contributions that immigrants make and what it means for us to be a society that can welcome people and provide for them in a way that, they, that everybody benefits from, to your point earlier. Yeah, great point. Thank you, Dan. And you, Chinoa? Yeah, similarly, I think comprehensive immigration reform is the, the big goal. Not only legalizing immigrants who are here or providing a path to legalization and citizenship, but also dealing with the fact that people are going to continue to enter the country because in many cases, U.S. policy has affected the economic condition of their countries. And so they're, they're going to continue to enter. And so how can we keep this from being not just clearing a backlog and then starting it again, but but reshaping, similar to what Dan said, the way that we handle immigration. So that's like my big goal. My I'm also am very inspired by the work of local advocates and local policymakers. Even if federal policy, we get what we really dream of. The fact that that 
local policymakers are thinking really creatively about things like how can we make sure that immigrants don't get deported for traffic offenses and things like that and changing sentencing laws and all of these really cool things. I'm, I'm really inspired by the work of local folks doing work on the ground. Thank you. Thank you both. I mean, you are absolutely terrific. You know, I'm, I'm amazed by your enthusiasm and your expertise on these issues. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our uh, readers are going to learn a lot too. Thank you very much for your time and keep doing what you're doing. That's really great. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.